after delays, after fights with the studio about runtime and all this stuff, Paramount and Warner Brothers dump a movie in March of 2007 that should have been an Oscar contender, directed by one of the most world-renowned movie uh, movie directors. It ends up being one of my favorite movies of all time, which is why we are discussing about it today, and that would be David Fincher's Zodiac. Let's talk about it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And if you are listening to this on your favorite podcast app, make sure you are leaving us a rating, a review, all of that good stuff. Today, we are discussing David Fincher's Zodiac, and we have a special guest. I am uncertain the scheduling of recording and releasing, so perhaps this is her first time on the show, perhaps it's her second, Uh, but either way, tell the people who you are. Hi, everyone. (laughs) My name's Autumn. I'm Zach's wife. And I guess we can start with in 2007. You're how old? Uh, I didn't know I was going to have to do math for this show. I was born in 92, so 15. You're 15. Okay. And you're probably not aware that Zodiac is coming out? No. Not that I remember. Yeah. I I don't think I saw this. No, I definitely didn't see this in 2007. I saw this in 2010. Um, But this is the first time you've seen this movie, correct? Yeah. Okay, so I first saw Zodiac. Um, I think I was studying for midterms my freshman year. And in 2010 is when The Social Network came out. Yeah, this all kind of lines up. Because The Social Network would have come out in 2010. I'd be studying for... Oh, I probably didn't even see this until 2011 then. Because I'm probably studying for midterms in January of 2011. And I... I'm just obsessed with the social network and the social network. Really? Yeah. I, I love that movie also directed by David Fincher. And this is probably, this is probably the time when I like am recognizing that like there are people behind these movies that like I can follow. And so I think that Zodiac is one of those movies that my, either I saw it on like HBO or my mom owned the DVD and then when I like am going through IMDb and I see like, oh, this is directed by David Fincher. I, I need to watch this. Uh, but I think, you know, this movie is like crucial for me because it's like I'm someone that loves to watch something or to have something playing in the background while I do other things. And this is probably that f- uh, one of the first movies that I can remember where I have this in the background, but I am not paying attention to whatever I'm supposed to be doing. I'm just, like, watching this movie. Mm. And I'm just, like, engrossed in this movie and in this story that is, like, playing out on screen. And, I mean, we can, we'll get into it when we talk about, like, the background of how this movie came to be. But, like, is that is that something that you found when watching this movie? Yeah. Um, when you put it like that, I mean, my knowledge of movies isn't as vast as yours. But if I were to compare it to, like, The Silence of the Lambs that we had watched recently, um, I found that Zodiac was much more compelling. You know, they both have, like, the same crime aspect where the cops talk a lot and there's a lot of that um, back and forth. But this caught my attention more. Silence of the Lambs was really a sleeper for me. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those... It's it's a long movie, so it clocks in at... 
right around two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. And there is a director's cut, which I think is a little bit longer. Hmm. But even still, like, you're rewatching this today, and I was... I was like, oh, it seemingly is like in the beginning of the movie because they're still like in the new, the Chronicle and Paul Avery and Jake Gyllenhaal's character are going out to lunch or whatever. And you're like, and I was, oh, you're pretty early into this, but no, you're actually like an hour into this movie. Yeah. And yeah. so like it kind of flies by. I would say the same, you didn't see this, but I did of like Killers of the Flower Moon, which is three and a half hours. And like, it doesn't feel that way. And there's just something about... There's a difference between pacing in 2007, the way movies were made, and now where it seems like every major blockbuster that comes out is two and a half hours, but they fucking, they feel like four hours, mm-hmm. whereas this is two hours and 40 minutes that feels like 90 minutes. Yeah. The other big thing, which we will talk about a little bit later, is just this idea that, of just of just how this movie ends, which is... You know, when I first saw it, and I assume the same is true of you, like, I didn't know about the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. Or, like, I maybe I knew the name, but I certainly didn't know, like, the the case details. And so there's a point where, like, you think, like, you're getting to the point where, like, they're going to wrap up the movie and the case is going to be solved. And it's like, well, we don't know who did this. We don't, like, and I remember, like, seeing that and being just like, what the fuck? Like, yes, that's that was my reaction the first time I watched it. It's like how how do you make a movie of the story where like there's no satisfying ending? There's no like like, like Silence of the Lambs has an ending. They, yeah. The guy gets caught. Buffalo Bill is captured, and this is like, well, we think it's this person. It's also interesting because like the movie heavily implies that it is somebody without telling yeah. you that it is somebody. Uh, but for me, like, this is probably one of the first movies I watched kind of, like, based on real events where I'm like, well, now I need to go see, like, what all the fuss is about. And I remember reading the Zodiac book after this and, like, just needing to kind of – David Fincher does this thing where he makes this movie about obsession and then he, like, by the end of it, like, you kind of are the Robert Graysmith character where you're kind of like, I need to know, like, what happened. And then you, like, read the book and you read the subreddits and you read all the articles and you're just like, I – I know what he went through because I also need to know, like, mm. who this person was. I would like to read the book. Do we have the book? Yeah. <laughs> okay. We have the book. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about how this movie was made. So, this movie, I'm sure you're familiar with the show. We go through budgets, breakdowns, how much this movie grossed, how this movie kind of came to be. Uh, this movie is made for roughly $65 million, and it grosses $84 million. And that's not good. That's bad. No. Uh, this movie quite possibly, most likely, lost money. Uh, it's you know dumped in March. I think this comes out March seventh of two thousand and seven. So like this movie, David Fincher goes to some studio. He goes somewhere. Where does he go first? When David Fincher comes on board, there's a lot that happens before. David Fincher even comes on board. Uh, but, okay, he... Fincher approaches MGM and is like, I, we want to make this movie. And MGM basically goes, okay, but it has to be two hours and 15 minutes. And so, David Fincher goes, no. I don't want to make that movie. And so, basically what ends up happening is Paramount and Warner Brothers co-finance the movie and they release it. I think it's something like... Um, 
they agreed to share production costs, but I think Paramount is inevitably the one that distributes it. And so basically they allowed David Fincher more flexibility in the running time. And then the big thing is they give David Fincher final cut. Hmm. Now, are you are you familiar with what that means? <laughs> no, I was just <laughs> I was just thinking that. What does that mean? So some studios will offer a filmmaker an a notor, so to speak, like David Fincher. They'll say, we will give you final cut on the movie, but you have to make it for less money, which means we'll give you less money than you want, but we won't touch it. You get to basically release whatever you want. Okay, so they don't like edit it at all. They're not allowed to. No, okay. that is in the contract okay. that they cannot take out, add anything like that. They can make notes, but at the end of the day, they have to release the movie that David Fincher gives them. Okay. And so this created like big disputes because this is supposed to be like an Oscar type movie for 2006. But David Fincher was like incredibly unhappy with like the cut of the movie. And they were disputing back and forth because they didn't want the movie to be this long and they wanted it to be shorter. They didn't think there was enough like action sequences. They didn't think hmm. there was enough. They, they didn't like basically that it's people in a room talking for two hours and 40 minutes. And so they said, this is not a very marketable movie. This is not a movie that's going to make money. This is not a movie that, you know, is, is going to be profitable for us. We want you to cut it down and then we can release it for Oscar season, which would be would probably slot it somewhere in like November or December. Mm -hmm. And David Fincher was basically like, fuck off. No, like this is not, that's not the movie I want to make. I want to make this movie. And so basically as like a fuck you to David Fincher, the, they just dump it in March and nobody really sees it. They don't promote it very well. Nobody really talks about this movie. It doesn't get nominated for any awards that year. Nothing. It's just kind of, kind of forgotten about. And he wasn't happy with it. Uh, he's happy with this cut of the movie. He was okay. not happy. Like, he so was a different. He wasn't ready to release it in November, okay, or December. He didn't like that version of the movie, and so they said, "Well, you're going to miss all these windows." And then they could have held it to release it in like December of 2007, but because they were pissed that he was kind of giving them this runaround, like he didn't like the movie, he didn't have it ready for this time period. They dumped it in March and said, we're done with this. Hmm. But before it even gets to David Fincher, you have uh, Robert Graysmith sells the rights to Shane Salerno, which is, I'm sure is a name you do not know. <laughs> no, not at all. But he wrote the movie Alien vs. Predator. Which we've seen. Which I love. I, I love that yeah, movie. Yeah, and I've watched that, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, so he requires the rights, and he, I believe he's working for Disney, right? So this, this project- what? was originally owned by the Disney Corporation. Very odd. And so he wanted to write the script in a way of like the Zodiac resurfaces in San Francisco and starts killing again, which is kind of like his idea for the movie, which is even yeah. mentioned like in the Zodiac movie because as you see Dave Toski and they meet outside of like a movie theater, yeah. which is their, their meeting at the release of Dirty Harry, which Dirty Harry is very loosely based on Dave Toski. And very loosely based on these events. Okay. Well, I'm glad you told me that. I didn't understand that part of the movie, actually. So, yeah, that's yes. basically, like, what David <laughs> Fincher is doing. He's okay. being, like... The, basically, there's this whole... There's probably, like, five or six movies that have been made about Zodiac 
four or five of them being released like in the 70s yeah being released at a time where like the zodiac is still technically active wow with dirty harry being one of them and so this is a way even though we're like two hours into the movie at this point this is a way for david fincher to be like that's not the movie that i'm playing like that's not what we're doing here yeah so shane salerno like basically they he writes the script that nobody really wants to make and eventually the rights lap or the, the rights lapse and that's when the man who wrote the movie, James Vanderbilt, gets the book. He gets the rights from Disney and they start kind of like working on the script. And obviously their first director that they have in mind is David Fincher. David Fincher directed Seven. And so he's already kind of made this serial killer kind of movie. And so they were like, it would be perfect for David Fincher to make this movie. And, but they didn't think that he would agree. Right. And so they pitch it to David Fincher and he's like, yes, I'll do it, but we're going to do it my way. And my <laughs> David Fincher's way entails him and James Vanderbilt spending 18 months rewriting the script and interviewing everybody associated with the case that's still alive. Wow. So they- Oh my gosh. They interviewed everybody. Dave Chosky, Mike Michaud, they're all like consultants on the movie. They're all like- they're all present and everyone has an input and they he really wanted to know like he essentially makes the movie because he's interested in the movie but also the way he gets these people to cooperate is like basically telling them like we're going to tell it as truthfully as we can in hopes that maybe someone with information comes forward hmm. and so that's a big part of this movie is just police work a big part of this movie is the newspaper yeah like Fincher very much states that he views this movie as like a as, as in line of all the president's men, which is a newspaper movie. This is a movie about journalists, about people doing their jobs, not a serial killer movie, which I think it sets up very two like two very interesting things that are worth commenting on. One of them being about 40 minutes into the movie is when the murders stop. Yeah. And then you've got two hours after that. And then we never see a murder that does not also have a witness or a survivor attached to it. Because we know that there's murders on Christmas like a year prior, but we don't see those. When the movie opens, that's already happened. Yeah. And so we get basically like 40 minutes of a serial killer movie and then two hours of like a procedural movie. And I think for a lot of people... That probably doesn't work when they go into a Zodiac movie and, like, what they want to see. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't think that would work for me, but somehow it did. I think because they maybe they led with the exciting stuff, that the rest was more interesting. I wanted to know I believe, about the investigation. I believe David Fincher is on record stating that he didn't want to make a movie that serial killers could masturbate to. <laughs> And so, like, there, there, okay. is, there is a version of this movie that would get made that is more in line with the Shane Salerno version of this movie that is just, like, gratuitous violence and you're watching the yeah. Zodiac stalk and kill people. Which is typical. That, that's, that's what you what always you would, see. That's, that is Silence of the Lambs. That yeah. is the movie that you would get. Yeah. But he is not interested in that. And instead, he makes this movie. And I think it is interesting that, like, it's one of those things that you hear it and then you have to think like, is that true? Because you hear that the, well, the last murder you're going to see is about 35 minutes into the movie. Mm -hmm. And you go, wait, that can't be true. And then it is true. Yeah. 
And the rest of it, the rest of the murders, either have a survivor or they have a witness. And that's where you get the Mike Majot character who disappears. You get um, the, I think, is it the girl or the guy that survives at the, the lakeside? The guy. The guy it's survives. It's always the guy. And then even when you have the murder where there is no survivor and the cab driver, you have the person who witnesses from the window. Right, the kids, yeah. So there's always a witness, and like that is how they they built the story before even filming is around these people. Mm -hmm. So the other thing, this is stuff that like isn't really doesn't really pertain to the story of like the movie, but it pertains to like kind of the rest of the world, right? The rest of pop culture in general, which is that I'm sure this is not something that you are familiar with. Um, clearly my knowledge is slim well okay so the other thing would be that like david fincher grew up in san francisco in the 70s so he was so he was there he remembers like police following his school bus because of the zodiac killer That's threatening fascinating so he he was there and like he lived through it which also i think gives this different kind of perspective that's more personal for the movie. yeah and probably also another one of the big reasons why he even agrees to do it in the first place right um you have notes. It's not fair. <laughs> I'm not asking you to know this stuff. So. so this is a big, big movie in terms of like technology, right? And I'm curious like if these are even things that you're like consciously aware of when watching the movie. For example, all blood that you see in the movie is CGI. I mean. Do you think that that is something that like you, because I noticed it. But at the same time, we're very different movie watchers. Yeah. So is this something that you noticed that would have pulled you out of the movie? Uh, I don't think it pulled me out. I mean, I looked the first cloth that he sent with blood on it. Like, did that look like a real torn, tattered piece of clothing with blood on it? No. I think when you notice it the most is like blood pooling. Because I think I don't think digital blood pooling looks very realistic or good. Yeah. Yeah, I don't it didn't take me out of it by any means. No, I think that was a small detail. Then That's the other big thing, notice. the bulk of the budget for this movie, besides paying actors and whatever, goes to digitally recreating San Francisco at the time. So almost all of that stuff is digitally recreated. Yeah. So there's the scene where of the cab driver where you're yeah. following him overhead and he like turns down the road and whatnot. Yeah. All digitally recreated. Okay. Didn't I mean, notice? Didn't pull you out? No. <laughs> I bought it. <laughs> I'm a sucker. I bought it. So the the real life location where that scene takes place, they didn't want them doing it there. They were like, we don't want you recreating that here. So they redid it all with blue screen and green screen. They all they recreated that entire street corner digitally. Okay. Well, yeah, I didn't notice. But there's the other thing that happens for this, which is this is one of the first big kind of studio hollywood movies that's not shot on 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter it's shot digitally mm -hmm. and so they stated that you know they could shoot in lower light because digital cameras don't need as much light as film does but it's also like an infinite resource for them especially for someone who is like as neurotic and as obsessive as david fincher is right so because they introduce this idea of digitally shooting things is when the real kind of myth about the obsessive nature of David Fincher kind of comes into play. Cause I mean, it, it's, it's kind of there in movies like fight club. It's kind of there in movies like 
Oh, like, like like Panic Room and stuff like that, but like it isn't really come full fruition until you get to this movie. Like the mythos that he also himself leans into of David Fincher is a man who's going to shoot seventy takes of a scene, and you know there's this obviously caused a lot of tension on set between mm-hmm. Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr. Mark Ruffalo seemingly was on board. He thought it was fine. There's a special feature on the Blu-ray, which is like a, a nine or sixty-minute like making of documentary. Mm-hmm. And there's a sequence of Jake Gyllenhaal literally just like picking books up and moving them from the center console to the next seat. And there's a joke of like one of the people on set calls out to him and is like, "How many times do you think he's going to make you do this?" <laughs> and he goes, uh, "I mean, this is pretty simple. It shouldn't take more than like two or three takes." And David Fincher makes him do it. 26 times whoa and there's like Ah. just there's multiple stories of david fincher making these people shoot 70 takes on something there's the reason they used cgi blood is that he didn't want to have to like change wardrobes he didn't want to have to like reset everything up like because you got blood on everything you have to clean it up and start over he used cgi blood so that he could do 75 takes of someone getting stabbed until it worked and, you know, he defends this by going, there's a scene where Mark Ruffalo and Robert Downey Jr. are talking, and he says that, like, he did it, they did it 55 times, and they were kind of annoyed, being like, if you haven't got it yet, like, maybe you just got to work with what you've got. And then David Fincher says, one more time, and then the 56th take is what's in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So, there's that Good aspect figure. to it as well. But like, he also, like, kind of brings brings this idea, like, to set of, like we're making a movie and if you have somewhere that's like fucking more important to be then you shouldn't be here and i think that helps in making a movie like this i also think it helps in terms of like making these people look more obsessed and tired and run down Mm -hmm. because that also will aid the movie yeah i think that's what fuels the entire movie like i I think with jake gyllenhaal and like he he has to look obsessed I think forcing him to do a simple thing 26 times is going to help you get there a lot faster Mm -hmm. than just you don't necessarily have to rely on his acting ability because he's just there naturally. Yeah, that's true. And like, I didn't think about that. There's a lot that there's a lot that could go into the like, whether that's ethical or not, right? Like Robert Downey Jr. reportedly like left jars of urine on set to like what to protest like the long days that they were forced to shoot. Okay. Basically being like, like this isn't fair, and like we're not getting proper time off. So like he just started peeing in jars and leaving them around set. Okay, but that's this is that's this, like that's ridiculous though. I mean, I would agree. You signed on to do this, like. Well, and they're all artists. They must understand to some extent what David Fincher is trying to do. I think at this point in time, Robert Downey Jr. is fairly like cocky. I think it sounds Ro- like it. I and- think Robert Downey Jr. This so this is post heroin addiction, oh, and he's okay. like he's clean from that because he's playing an alcoholic. Yeah, he's clean from yeah. that, and this is kind of like this is this is kind of like his comeback. Yeah, not necessarily this movie, but like in this era, and he kind of was like he kind of ha- like gives off this like, impression in like interviews that like he made me do it fifty six times, but like what he wanted, I got on the third take. And he's just making us do it over and over and over again. Okay. Yeah. So like, maybe that's what it is. But at the same time, 
this movie probably doesn't get made at a different time for Robert, at least not with Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, because in two thousand eight he's Iron Man, so like, Which is so bizarre. So without like, th- there's like a lot of things that kind of align for this movie to even come together with who is in it. One of them being Robert Downey Jr. who would go on to do Iron Man the next year. Yeah, reportedly. Jake Gyllenhaal is pissed about all this because this is he's filming this during his Oscar campaign for Brokeback Mountain. Oh. And so there's like a lot of schmoozing that he didn't get to do because David Fincher has him there all day. And he's arguably upset about that. And you have Mark Ruffalo, who like these guys Jake Gyllenhaal's not really that big yet, but I mean Mark Ruffalo and uh Robert Downey Jr. are going to go on to be huge stars yeah who might not do this movie and reportedly david fincher sees jake gyllenhaal in donnie darko and is like that's the guy yeah that's the guy he can do like doe-eyed but he can also do obsessed i've actually seen that i think but it's it's almost the same not necessarily the same character but he has he uses these same kind of like expressions yeah and he uses that sort he does that like very innocent way that he is in the beginning of Donnie Darko, like he is in the beginning of this, and then by the end of the movie he's completely off the rails. Yeah, and it works very well. Maybe it doesn't work as well if he's not asked to do this forty times. I believe that's it. That's it. Well, I think that's it for. <laughs> I believe that's it for how this movie got made. Oh, there's one other aspect that we should talk about, I guess, with this. So, we currently are recording this in 2023, right? Yeah. And I would say, maybe not now, but, like, definitely during COVID, definitely a little bit before COVID, there's, like, David Fincher is seemingly ahead of the curve on a lot of these things. He's a lot. He's ahead of the curve with digital filmmaking, which would explode kind of in the couple years after this in kind of, like, its capabilities and what it can do. But also, like, thematically, and, like, in these movies about obsession, but also true crime. This is a true crime movie. Mm-hmm. And this is a true crime movie probably, like, 10 years before the boom would really, like, go off. And as, like, an early example, like, I don't, I'm curious what you think about this. I don't think this movie gets made today. Because I think this is a 10-episode miniseries on Netflix if someone's going to make this today. Yeah. And it's interesting in terms of like the, like the creating of this movie and like kind of being ahead of his time. Because before he agreed to do this, he was working on an adaptation of like The Black Dahlia. Yeah. And which is a movie that goes on to be made, directed by Brian De Palma. And he's working on that. And he wanted it to be five episodes, and it's kind of in 2006, 2005, when he's shopping this around, nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing five-episode miniseries. He kind of invents this platform for Netflix Mm -hmm. because he would go on to do House of Cards or like produce and create that show, which would be Netflix's like first original content. And he kind of... He's ahead of the curve, like, with that aspect, and he's ahead of the curve with true crime. And I think approached with this project today, no one's going to be like, here's $80 million for a two-hour and 50-minute movie. 
they'd be like, well, let's make a six episode show out of this instead. Yeah, I don't think today either that anyone would really be enthralled with Zodiac. I don't like I think of Dahmer with Evan Peters yep. and how that starts out with just a bunch of like sex and gore and boom, boom, boom. The stuff that serial killers can jerk off to. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what people want to see in a miniseries about crime. So if they were to make Zodiac a miniseries, you're watching episode after episode of dudes talking to each other. That's that's possible, too, that like. Perhaps as a story, the Zodiac story isn't that interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you break it down, I probably not. Because Graysmith is really what runs the whole thing. It's his obsession that keeps you interested and the story still sparkling. Not even just him. You have three separate characters who kind of like have to kind of work through this. One, it's one per. It's well, two of them. It's their job, and one of them, they just become obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. But like, but like they point out in the movie, he killed four people in the span of like three years. Like, yeah, is that really going to be like that salacious of a story that someone adapts for like a Netflix original show? No. Probably not. Not at all. Like, what drives the movie is these characters and their like obsession with it all, mm-hmm. and how it like controls their lives. And it completely just takes over. Well, that is enough (laughs) on the making of Zodiac. Let's break down the movie. So, the film opens in 1969. We see Darlene Farron and Mike Michaud kind of going to Lover's Lane. A lot of this, a lot of the details from the scene are, like, taken from real life. Like, Mike Michaud wearing four layers of clothes. Like, that's a real thing that they pulled from police reports and it probably like a lot of people credit like that is the reason he's still alive is because he was wearing like so For, many layers yeah uh but you, you see this kind of opening murder which i think is probably one of the mo- like i think all the sequences in this movie with the zodiac killer are very tense and very like i don't know it's it's weird because i don't i don't find them like particularly like scary no, not at all. I don't think that like any of the murders that are depicted are like scary. They're not. I don't even think they're like. I don't. I, I, maybe that speaks to, to where we are with like movies and with culture and like our desensitivity to violence. But like when this came out, like these were kind of like shocking, grisly murders to depict on screen. And I watching this in the current year, I don't necessarily find any of the murders that shocking or extreme i just think they're really well designed and suspenseful and they're i mean they're realistic yeah i mean that's true (laughs) like so like for the the scene at the lake when they get stabbed like it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a gross sound because it doesn't sound like a typical movie stabbing sound right it sounds way more realistic yeah and you know, the, the, traditionally, the way they make that sound is they stab a watermelon, right? Like, oh, they no, clearly they clearly aren't doing that in this movie. They clearly yeah. are doing something much different. Mm-hmm. And I just I think there, there's an attention to detail in all of these scenes that are just like that kind of elevated over something else that like that elevated over. I'm trying to think of an example of like a serial killer movie that like 
we would have that that would have been made recently. I guess like the the Based Ted on- the Ted Bundy movie with Zac Efron, um, right? Yeah, yeah, Where, I vaguely like, remember that. Like that movie is very much about. I don't want to say like glorifying or even like Dahmer, like you said, it's not really about these people that criticize these shows. They state that like we don't want to sympathize with these killers because mm-hmm. they're awful people. And I think that a movie like this like never gives you that opportunity because it quite literally features Zodiac in four scenes besides the letters. Yeah, and he well Zodiac's in a different ball game too. I mean Ted Bundy is a good looking guy. We don't know what Zodiac looks like. We don't know. Well, if, okay, if we're assuming it's Lee Allen, then, you know, not. Just said, we don't know. He could be. It's fucking Lee Allen. I can't. So you're, okay, I guess we can talk. You're convinced. Did. Yeah. Does this movie convince you or do other things convince you? Well, for me, I haven't read the book. So what other things are there? You know, for me, it's just the movie. I haven't researched. I mean, I googled Graysmith today, but I didn't read much because I was rewatching the movie. Um, but the yeah, the movie had me convinced that it was Lee Allen. I think a lot of people are convinced it's Lee Allen. I mean, there's definitely a lot of things that like conveniently add up because like, like, you say that the movie convinces you that it's Lee Allen. And obviously the movie is taking that stance that Arthur Lee Allen is the person who did this. Yeah. But then you get like that interrogation scene where it almost kind of plays out as like Arthur Lee Allen knows that these guys are onto him, but he seemingly knows they don't have anything on him. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of at least like the way it's played out that they <sighs> That, that he knows and that he's like kind of showing off to them. He shows off the boot. He shows off the watch. Yeah. He makes all these like there, there's nothing prompting him to say something like, oh, all the blood in the back of my car was from the chickens I slaughtered. Yeah. Like there's nothing. He's not asked any kind of question. He just gives that information. So like he seemingly wants these guys to know that he did it. Yeah. That's the whole angle with Zodiac. He wants to be known. And I think that's like quite possibly the most frustrating part of the movie is how seemingly easy it is to commit murders in the 70s and not and get away with it. But also like how much evidence you need to convict any of these people. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, a movie released in last year called anatomy of a fall it's probably one of the best movies that was released in 2023 (laughs) never heard of it uh it's a like it's a french english movie okay and so like it's a police procedural as well but it's also like shows very differently like how our court system is very different from theirs Mm -hmm. because like they introduce all kinds of things in that movie that are just like purely speculation and conjecture that could never be proved. And here it's like you have all of these things that point to this one man and like you still have Mark Ruffalo sitting aside from you at the diner being like, I can't prove any of that. Yeah. And that is enough like to not convict any of these people. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to like what you think about the performances here because we have three characters, right? You've got Jake Gyllenhaal, yeah, Robert Downey Jr., and Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo, yeah. And I know 
and I mean, the list goes on for character actors that are in this movie that you've probably seen in a bunch of things, but you don't know them yeah, from. Those are the main dudes. Do you mean you have like Anthony Edwards, who's Mark Ruffalo's partner, who's okay, in yeah. a bunch of things. You have Brian Cox, who plays like he's he's literally in the movie for one scene. He's in the movie as like that psychiatrist that calls in that Zodiac calls to. Oh, yeah. The, with the glasses. Yeah. Probably a guy you've seen a bunch of times. Even like. The guy that plays Lee, Lee Allen, Arthur Lee Allen. Yeah. John Carroll Lynch. That's probably a person that, you've yeah, seen before. Yeah, well, he's huge now in American Horror Story. Oh, see, yeah. Yeah, he's been in like three or four seasons. And I know that you're not like a, a big Oscar person, but like... <laughs> no. <laughs> these are, these, in my opinion, like, these are Academy Award nominee like performances. Yeah. From all three of them. Yeah, I don't... <laughs> I don't know. They did good. I don't know. <laughs> you done good, kids. But like, uh, it, this is kind of why, like, like the studio bickering and like them bickering with David Fincher, like this, this movie just doesn't really get the justice that it deserves. Like before, yeah. I asked you to watch this movie. Did you even know that this movie existed? I don't think so. Maybe when it first came out, I had heard of it, but it wasn't on my radar. But I'm also somebody who's like watching Mean Girls a hundred times in a row. Like this isn't my normal type of movie. Um, I am getting into them more, but this wouldn't be on my radar at all. No. Interesting. Interesting. Not on your radar. No. One of the greatest movies ever made. Not on your <laughs> radar. Yeah. Well, as you know, my taste in movies is questionable. <laughs> I was, what? It, so this came out when I was 15. I was watching like the Cheetah Girls on Disney Channel. <laughs> At 15, you're watching the Cheetah Girls? Probably. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. I know. This is what's wrong with this country. Well, you're teaching me a lot. And I'm glad I did see Zodiac. I'm glad I'm watching more of these movies. So I think like... Like, like we just talked about, like Arthur Lee Allen seemingly wants to be caught. Yeah. Like he lo- he's, he's dangling. He's getting off on that idea of like, yeah, you know that I know that you know that I did this, mm-hmm. but you can't prove anything. So here we are. Yeah. But like we, we, we kind of see this play out with three different characters. Like what I think is so like bold about the movie, right? Because like we talked about. MGM wanted it to be two hours and 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. I think that you could make this movie two hours and 15 minutes because, (laughs) but like the movie requires you to go down dead ends. Yeah. The rabbit holes. So like there's literally a point in the movie that Mark Ruffalo states this, that like there's a reason this case will never get solved. People get older. They forget things. Mm -hmm. All of these people that you were trying, that you were asking questions about all these years later, they're dead ends. Yeah. And so, but like, the movie forces you to go down those dead ends. It forces you to kind of like, like the Rick Marshall thing. Rick Marshall, no one is cast to play Rick Marshall. He's yeah. not, he doesn't, he's not featured in the movie. And in the first probably two hours of the movie, that name is never even mentioned. Yeah. But it's like, and we kind of, this is even after they're very confident that it is uh, Arthur Lee Allen. We still, seemingly have to go down this rick marshall rabbit hole Mm -hmm. just for it to go nowhere well that's almost what so rick marshall's the one they thought made the movie poster yes yeah 
that's what almost flickered me away from Arthur Lee Allen because of the handwriting. They were so focused on the handwriting, not so much that Rick Marshall had done anything, but that weird guy that had his film in the basement. Because that was a very peculiar scene. Which which I think is interesting. It, it's interesting that like handwriting plays such a big deal in this, even though like it would never be something that's used today to convict somebody. Right. Because it's it, like, it is such a pseudoscience that like people would be like, oh, the handwriting matches. Get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like we almost <laughs> they almost seemingly paint a picture that like unless they have Arthur Lee Allen shooting someone on the camera, like mm-hmm. it nothing will stick, even though there's a completely compelling case without the handwriting yeah but it's interesting that you you bring up that scene because like i think that scene is kind of like when we're in the mouth of madness so to speak there's nothing inherently creepy about what's taking place when you like think about it like boil it down to its essence like what happens right he goes to this guy's house he keeps things in the basement okay it's a little weird that like he has a basement in california i'll give you that but that's not even what i thought was weird what's weird the fact, well, and I guess this has to do with the the madness. Is Jake Gyllenhaal going to his house in the first place, and he had already been getting those phone calls? So you think he just should have you like, uh, yeah, I'm just not coming a, to your I mean, house. a little question, like a little more question than he did. He was like, oh, okay, all right, I'll come to your house. It's like, well, that also could be the mindset that leads people to getting killed by Zodiac in the first place. They're just like, yeah, there's no one out there that's well, gonna hurt like me. Pure stupidity. Yeah, well, not even stupidity, just like. Ignorance. A, a thing that existed in the country at the time that does not. We're like, you're not as weary of strangers. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I have to think of that time difference. So, like, there's really nothing that would lead Jake Gyllenhaal to believe that this guy is going to hurt him. Right. Even though he's chasing down a serial killer and has been getting strange phone calls in the middle of the night. But he, even still, so he goes to the house and he talks to the guy and the guy leads him to the basement and he basically tells him like oh well the handwriting on that poster is not from rick marshall like i did that it's a little more eerie than that i think well i'm sure like like, i think i did the posters myself i think like obviously i think that the (laughs) actor that plays that guy is kind of playing it up a little bit (laughs) yeah at the same time like jake gyllenhaal like runs up the stairs he runs the door he can't open the door because it's locked and the guy comes up behind him and unlocks the door for him so he can leave and the mirror was right there i think they really played into that but I, i think the scene is so like freaky and kind of like full of paranoia because we're we're seeing it from the eyes of robert gray smith yeah we're like in his head he thinks he might have just confirmed something yeah and that's why it's so freaky but like and if, when you look at just the bare bones of what's happening it's not really that freaky right you go to a guy's house you talk to him see some stuff in his basement you learn some information that should make you puzzle and be like oh, yeah okay but nothing that's like this guy's gonna kill me right now even though that's how he acts yeah and then that's one of like the many dead ends we have to go down the other one is the brian cox scene with the guy calling in yeah it's one of those things that like is completely unnecessary to be in the movie yeah other than that it just distills to this point of like they have they're not anywhere near close to catching him and these are one of the many things they would have to follow up on to make sure that this isn't the actual Zodiac killer. Well, and isn't it strange that that fail that fake call came in from presumably a man in an institution. However, the real Zodiac 
they say, did call while he was away and the, the maid answered. So the real Zodiac, they're saying, did actually try to get in touch with that guy. Quite possibly, like, after seeing that broadcast or whatever. Right. I guess like, that I would be get, the connection there. We saw the broadcast and, like, wants to get in touch with him because he's obsessed with seeing yeah. himself or whatever. But it's, like, it's one of the many sort of like it's it's the reason the movie's two hours and 40 minutes and arguably the reason it has to be two hours and 40 minutes Mm -hmm. because you need to go down these holes and you also (laughs) you need to think that you are on the cusp of solving it and then just to have it like ripped away from you Mm -hmm. which is what i think the movie does incredibly well yeah and that's just like the the dave toski aspect that's just the Robert Graysmith aspect, you also have like the Paul Avery perspective, which is he seemingly is in this place where this is this is the case that if he solves it, he's going to get big from. Mm-hmm. He's going to become one of the most well-known journalists in the country, which seemingly is his reasoning for wanting to solve it. So my question to you about Paul Avery, that poses the question. Um when did he go mad like and why like did he go mad after he found out that big information that big discovery he had and nothing really came of it is that when he started to go downhill i think it's after i think it's after the zodiac mentions him by name and threatens him right and then after that point he kind of is like he that's when he wants to buy the gun he becomes more paranoid yeah and he also like he seemingly is just as frustrated as everybody else because he's also not anywhere closer to figuring out who it is yeah i think that's kind of i think we're led to believe that's kind of what happens is that his life is threatened by the zodiac he doesn't know who it is so the threat could be from anybody right and that kind of leads him into living on a houseboat and yeah, because then they skip ahead to a year later, and that's when he's well, it's, it's, know, drinking at the office. It's and, kind of when he, like, disappears from the movie in general. Yeah. Like, after that point, he's kind of not there until you Robert Graysmith goes to visit him. And, you know, he has that line of, like, you've just reinvigorated my sense of purpose. I took that as sarcasm, though. Well, Was it not? Every, I think everything he says <laughs> is, like, sarcastic. Yeah. But I think there's, like, there's a level to it. <sighs> Because, like, if you're Paul Avery and you've been investigating this case for however long and someone comes to you and is like, I'm writing a book about this, wouldn't you kind of think that, like, well, I'm the one that should be writing the book about this? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I thought is Graysmith wanted to, like, partner with him. Well, that may be, like, what he wanted, but then he sees the kind of state that he's in and is like, well, this is impossible. But it's also, like, what he wanted the most was Zodiac to make him famous. And then right. Graysmith comes to him and is like, I'm writing this book that will most likely make him famous. He's like, fuck you. And he's like, get out of that my house. Should have been, that should have been me. <laughs> like, I think Graysmith essentially becomes what Paul Avery should have been. What he wanted to be. Or what he, what yeah. he wanted to be. And you kind of have that juxtaposition on the houseboat where he is like figuring it out. And then, you know, years later, the book comes out or whatever. And he's drinking and smoking with a CPAP machine or whatever that is. Yeah, oxygen. oxygen. Tank. <laughs> a small oxygen tank at the it's, bar. Like at that point, it's just like, that's so the last sad. time we see him. It's also him being like, well, this is my fate and he did his and this is where I am. So, so yeah. be it. Do you think 
knowing all of this stuff about how like the movie is made, do you think that enhances the viewing experience? Do you think you can see the movie now in like a different way of like just kind of knowing how this was made? Yeah, I think I was thinking that this whole time when you gave me new information, like it's really interesting to know that the director himself was alive and there during that time and that his obsession also fueled the movie Um, and knowing what the actors went through and seeing that perspective of like Jake Gyllenhaal had to do this, you know, 70 times. Maybe that's what helped the performance. Um, Oh, I guess the other character that we haven't talked about is uh, Chloe Savigny. Savigny, however you pronounce your name. Oh, the wife, the wife. Melanie. Wife. Is it Melanie? Who I think, <laughs> if if there was a criticism that I had of the movie, like I think it's her. Not that like she gives a bad performance. Not that like I just think her character is literally there to just show what Jake Gyllenhaal is giving up, and it's just like that's that's kind of all she's there for, and it's kind of the only purpose that she serves. And I just I feel like. This is a David Fincher thing in general where, like, a lot of his female characters are literally just there to, like, kind of be the thing that the male is giving up. Yeah. And, like, I don't know. I just, I wish that, like, there was something more for her to do, even though, I mean, you could make the case that, like, well, this is history. Like, in real life, there was nothing for her to do either. So what are we supposed to do? Well, isn't she the one that laid down the copy of um, Arthur Lee Allen's license? When she stopped by, she's like, he said, I can't have the kids see me like this. And she says, well, I can't see you like this either. Finish this. And then she yeah. lays down his copy. Could be. Because I also thought it was like, divorce papers. But he opens it and it's Arthur Lee Allen's um, copy of identification with his birthday on it. Oh, because that's how he ties the birthday to the phone yes, call. Yes, that's what she gives him. And we don't know why or how, but she's just like, finish this. Here's this huge piece of information well i guess it would have been interesting to know like because i I guess we don't really see them get divorced we see that like they're we assume i think you're led to assume that yeah but that like i don't this is this is quite possibly like a valid criticism you could have that because we have to split the story across three separate characters it seems like there's stuff that gets like left out and like you can fill in the blanks, but like perhaps it, it is a more emotionally impactful movie if we do just focus on Gray Smith the entire time, or if we just focus on Dave Tosky the entire time, because we see his wife two to three times, and mm-hmm. like we kind of know that she exists. We know that he has three daughters because he tells us. Yeah. But like, what kind of impact does this case have on his life? seemingly like not that many other than it's one that he just can't seem to let go for some reason yeah i mean it's another case for him that's it's it's It's, like what becomes robert grayson's obsession like is just another day on the job for him right so it doesn't i don't think it impacts him in the same way and i don't think that story would be as interesting but at the same time like he does have his own like moments of obsession where he needs to know who did it because mm-hmm. they try so hard to get Arthur Lee Allen and they can't. Yeah. Well, and something obviously led him to giving Graysmith all of this information that he gave him That's, that he wasn't supposed to. There's, those are moments <laughs> of the movie that like I love of like, I can't tell you that, but maybe this guy can. Yeah. Maybe you should talk to blah, blah, blah. Like just a little hint over burgers. 
Maybe you need to go to Vallejo to figure this out, or maybe Jack Molnax can tell you what to do. Or... Is that how he becomes Dirty Harry? Is that what sparks that? Dirty Harry. Because um, did you say it was about him? He's the inspiration for it. Oh, but it's not. Yeah, like, so like okay. Dirty Harry has elements to it. And hey, we might do a bonus episode of all the Zodiac movies that exist. That'd uh, be cool. So it's, there's a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. <laughs> uh, so there's a, there's a component to Dirty Harry where like someone threatens to shoot up a school bus unless they're given like a hundred thousand dollars it's like it's very it's yeah weird things like that there's a lot of movies that have those weird kind of zodiac elements but aren't really about like a serial killer yeah but then there are other ones that are more straight up like shitty kind of like we're gonna exploit these victims and we're gonna be exploitative to make money those movies exist yeah. But in terms of D- Dirty Harry, it's not really like a Zodiac movie. It's supposed to be more of like a Dave Toski movie. Because in real life, he does somewhat become like a figure because of all this. Yeah. And there's other things that like he did in San Francisco that kind of make him this sort of like heroic figure. And that's one of them. Like that's loosely what Dirty Harry is. Um, I was just thinking maybe it's like a side note that's not really important to the movie but there is i mean all of these men in the police department are giving a cartoonist information just because he's saying he's writing a book i i don't know as i work in healthcare like information private information is very important and these guys are just giving it all away they're letting him look at files i guess i think that's like that's kind of how their obsession with the case is like playing out like, they also want to know who it is. Right. They just can no longer dedicate their resources to yeah. it. It's like, we're tired. We can't do this anymore. This guy is willing to. So here's the information. Yeah. It's like, um, like, did you, there was, it's funny that, like, because th- I think this is how this would be made in, like, the modern day. Because there was a documentary miniseries called um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, hmm. which is about, the Bay Area rapist, Bay Area killer, something yep. like that. Heard of it. Uh, the Golden State Killer. That's who it is. Yeah, That's okay. It is. And so basically, like, this person, Michelle McNamara, who's, like, the central figure of the documentary, like, spends years of her life trying to find this person. And she ends up dying. Mm-hmm. And then, like, all of the people that had been following her following this kind of take over the case and solve it in, like, her memory. Oh, Wow. And so, like, I think that's that seemingly like is how these cops and detectives are treating Gray Smith as like, yeah, it's like we can't spend any more time on this case, but we also were not only were we like you at one point in time and we wanted to know, we still want to know. So like, yeah. if we if we can help you get there, then fine, but we can't do it, right? So I think that's kind of like, I think that's what we're supposed to take from all of that. Okay, that makes sense to me. Now, circling back, because just when you think you're done talking about this, I'm talking about the Zodiac think, all day. I keep thinking about. So, well, you mentioned um, Robert Graysmith's wife, Melanie. Yeah. Um, did anyone else think it was weird that he just let his son watch TV about the case with him and like overhear things and read the papers with him like not that it's like that didn't amount to much of anything except maybe the downfall of his relationship later but i I think that's like that's that's kind of like what they're hinting at we're like 
early in the movie when like the first Zodiac killing or the first one that we see happens and his son's in the room, he shuts the TV off. Right. You can't see this. But then like he is becoming more and more obsessed with the case. Yeah. So now it's like, well, any fresh set of eyes is a good set of eyes. So like, I don't care if you guys see this. Yeah. To the point where they're tracking the like moon schedule. Right. Based off of With all the kids at the table. (laughs) Okay. So that's just, um, like slowly going along with his madness it's slowly showing well it's, it's another thing showing like yeah. where he goes which is also interesting that you that we bring that up because like the movie does this thing where it doesn't tell you anything about these people prior to when the movie starts right so the movie starts jake gyllenhaal already has a kid and is divorced we yeah. don't know anything about that right and he mentions it briefly at the beginning like you're gonna go stay at mom and so-and-so's house and that's it and we know that like we learn that Dave Toski's married and has three daughters. We don't know anything about his private life outside of that. Yeah. Prior to the start of this movie. Right. Which, Which I honestly, think, I don't care about. I That's the thing. <laughs> is that, like, I think there's a thing that happens when a director, like, trusts the audience to kind of fill in these things for themselves. A, the information's not pertinent to this story anyway, so who cares? Yeah. But at the same time, like, I think, you know, a movie like this gets made and it's like, well, we need to know everything that happened to them before this started. And yeah. we need to know why are they like this this way? Why did yeah. they get divorced? And like all of this stuff would eventually come up somehow. Yeah. And I think this movie does – there's already so much to keep track of. Mm-hmm. I don't need to know like why Robert Gray Smith and his first wife got divorced. Right. And you know, like normally I am interested in that background stuff, but – for this because in the beginning they drop you like almost right in the middle it opens the, with a murder yeah they drop you right in the middle of it so i don't care to know the background of the characters they're interesting enough in the movie that i don't need to know any of that i don't even really think about it yeah I, I, there's just, i just think like the movie the movie throws a lot of information at you to the point where, like it kind of gets jumbled as you're watching it but i almost think that's like the point like it's yeah. it's kind of like supposed to get jumbled in your brain because like that's what it's like. Yeah, it really brings you into it. Like you feel like you're there. You and feel I really like you're think experiencing it. You have an understanding of like how police proceedings work. You mm-hmm. kind of by the end of the movie, you kind of know like why you can't get a warrant for this and why you can't get a warrant for that and why yeah. this has to happen and this has to happen and all of that. I just I don't think I think this movie is in the hands of somebody else. And it is a much glossier kind of like police procedural where like there's clear heroes and there's a clear bad guy and it all it all wraps up nicely in the end rather than leaving you in this place of like, well, what the fuck do we do now with this information? Mm -hmm. And I guess that's that's how we can end off. Besides besides the other thing, I actually think that like rewatching it again, it's been a few years. I think that like. Maybe this is just Robert Downey Jr. and how he delivers dialogue. But I also think this is, like, a really funny movie at times. Oh, definitely. Like, there's <laughs> there's so many, like, one-off lines that really don't kind of hit you until afterwards that are just, like, endlessly funny. Mm-hmm. Like, Jack Molnick's asking Robert Gray Smith if he smokes, and he says, one time in high school. Yes. Yeah, showing his innocence and, and how they used to call they called him retard because he is never he doesn't drink he doesn't smoke he's just a a guy with no life essentially and I think that's like 
that's another thing that perhaps perhaps a different person handles this movie with like it is much more of a newspaper movie we don't see the police we don't we just see a bunch of newspaper guys hanging around yeah paul avery trying to figure this out and then like you get a scene at the bar where they're talking and they're talking and he goes what do you like to do for fun and he says i like books he said okay anything else he goes i like to read he goes those are the same thing (laughs) yeah I, i just i think like it is like really dark subject matter i guess when you think about it mm-hmm. but i i think that it provides just enough like moments of levity where it's not because there are d- movies that are dark and like they're just hard to watch and yeah. they're hard to watch again and again and i think this provides enough levity with some one-liners with some delivery that makes this movie kind of endlessly just like i could watch this yeah once a year for the rest of my life and be fine i think it breaks up the monotony too of the board like if police crime isn't your thing that kind of breaks up the monotony of the conversations they have well i think if police crime isn't your thing i i don't think this is a movie for you but (laughs) okay maybe it's my thing now i don't know there's a lot of police Uh, crime in i like that mark ruffalo has to have animal crackers while he's on the case yeah there's just like little (laughs) and then he gets the new partner and like he asks if he has animal crackers and the new guy's like yeah like what the hell (laughs) there's just like small (laughs) moments like that that i think character detail really kind of like make it kind of makes the movie more alive makes these characters more alive yeah since they are based on real people you have this sort of disposal like these see these sort of things at your disposal already so why not use them but i don't know it's one of those things that like i think you could talk three hours about why scenes play out the way they do and the details that are in every single scene yeah david fincher is one of those people that like anything that you see in the frame you see for a reason and so i think there's just i'm sure people have done it that like you could endlessly break this down. Yeah. But I guess we can kind of end this with like, do, does this make you want to know more? Like, do you get to that ending and you go, I need to know what happens. I need to know more about what happens. Yeah. I mean, especially something based on a true story. Like I do, I want to read the book. I want to know more of the intimate details that maybe they don't get into in the movie, even though it is so detailed already. Um, obviously we're not going to find out who the killer is, but would I like to know more? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I've been down the rabbit holes. I've been, I've read all this stuff. <laughs> Great. It's my turn. It's, I think that that is inevitably like what the movie ends up doing so well is that it puts you in that position and then you get to the end and it's like time to write my own book on Zodiac because I need to know all of this stuff. Yeah. And so you have to, you endlessly search for answers that you will never get, which is kind of like what the movie is about it could be a movie about a killer stalking san francisco which sounds like a movie i would love but this is a movie about obsession and just something outside of your control that is just taking over your life that like Mm. our our need to want to have answers and like not letting things be unresolved oh yeah that's a that's a whole other conversation isn't it like (laughs) i don't i just i don't I don't think many movies today like would have the balls to do it. No. I really don't. I don't think many studios would want a movie that leaves you in this place. And so I think like a movie like this is special like for that reason. Yeah. Like there are some movies that end ambiguously, but this literally like takes you tells you based on a true story and then takes you to a point where it's like 
this is where the true story ends. Everything after this is speculation and we don't know. Yeah. And so I think for that reason, like this is a movie that is endlessly rewatchable that should be preserved and that people, more people should see and should talk about. But that is the end of our conversation about it. Well, don't divorce me when I start graysmithing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for watching. Thank you for being here. If you are listening on your favorite podcast app, make sure you're leaving us a review, a rating. You're getting in touch with us so we can continue the conversation. And until next time, keep enjoying good things. Go down the rabbit hole. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Goodbye, everybody.